You are listening to Faith City Outreach with Marina Maria, founder of Global Gospel Worship Radio. Marina interviews local pastors and global leaders to share their testimonies and their ministries. Our goal is to help you follow what Jesus taught in Matthew 6:33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, here's our host, Marina Maria. Welcome to Faith City Outreach. This is Marina Maria with today's special guest, Pastor Barbara Miller from the Tabernacle of David and the Center for International Reconciliation and Peace in Carnes, Australia. Pastor Barbara is also a psychologist, sociologist, a mediator, teacher, and writer. Pastor Barbara and her husband, Pastor Norman Miller's ministry, has a strong focus on reconciliation justice, prayer, and worship. They founded the Center for International Reconciliation and Peace as a parachurch ministry. Thank you very much, Pastor Barbara, for being on Faith City Outreach to share your latest book, Secret and Lies, the shocking truth about recent Australian Aboriginal history, a memoir, First Nations True Stories series. This book has also been or is a bestseller in a number of categories in Amazon US. For example, in public law, civil law, discrimination law, international treaties, and others. Barbara's book, Secret and Lies, shares the inspiring stories of First Nations leaders, which gives them a voice and legacy, and even though many of them have passed on, but their stories will live on as an inspiration to many. Pastor Barbara, in the um, preface of your book, Secrets and Lies, it says, this book has been a labor of love, as I wanted to tell some of the stories of key events and key people in Aboriginal history that I have been close to. I have profound respect for the people in these pages, and I wanted their stories to be told. Afterwards, you mentioned that your memoir in 2017, White Woman, Black Heart, was too long. And so you took out some of the chapters and planned to use them in the second memoir, which you left unfinished. Please share the dream God gave you in November 2020, where you were encouraged to finish the second memoir? Well, it was unusual. I had this dream where I was taken to a remote Aboriginal community called Arakoon that I had had a lot to do with that community. And in the dream, I saw someone called Silas Wallenby. Now, he was a reverend in the Uniting Church and a tribal elder. And I thought to myself in the dream, well, you've passed away. So how come I'm seeing you? And then the scene uh, changed. It, all this was happening fairly quickly. The scene changed to a young girl, might have been 10 or 12 years old. And I sensed that she was a granddaughter or great-granddaughter um, of the old man. And she pointed to a mobile phone of all things. And she said, this is your story and you need to write it. And then the dream ended. And I remembered it when I woke up in the morning. And I, I thought, look, the first few chapters of the book that I had pulled out 
was on Arakane and their story uh, and my involvement with them. And so it re really gave me the uh, inspiration to pick up those chapters that I had uh, written really about four years previously to pick them up and to finish them all. So it was an inspiration to me. So when you did grab those chapters to finish this memoir, how long did it take for you to write this book? Well, um, basically probably about six months. Okay. So that's fairly quick for a book. But it as is. I say, it it yes. was half, half written, yes. I know you got some of the stories from the Aboriginal Indians, or did you get some of the stories uh, from the uh, Aboriginal Indians translated? No, because uh, they speak English and okay. actually speak it quite well. Mm -hmm. They speak their tribal language as well. There are That's more great. Than, quite a few tribal languages, but, uh, for example, the Arakan um, people, um, they speak their traditional language as well as English. That's great. And I know, I believe you had mentioned they're a community who have a strong voice and they're not easily intimidated. Oh, absolutely. And I really admire them for that because the, the forces of oppression that have come against them mm -hmm. um, over the years have been quite strong. Um, but they are people who have always um, stood up for their rights and they have spoken out and they have been quite um, influential in the history of our nation for that reason. Mm -hmm. And how long have you known many of these First Nation leaders? I know you have worked with many of them and I even have seen a lot of your newspaper clippings from back in the 90s. So I'm just guessing, I don't know if it goes even further behind uh, the 90s, but I'm guessing you've worked with them for a long time. Yes. Um, so from the 1970s, so about 50 years. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. And I know that you said that many of them have passed on. And I'm guessing some of them are still alive today, right? I, oh, yes, absolutely, they are. Yes. And do they know about your book? Yes, they do. Um, so I've uh, sent uh, chapters to Aracoon and Mornington Island, um, another community that was very involved in the takeover by the Queensland government, and um, also to um, a number of other Aboriginal people to write reviews or just to let them know, hey, this, you get um, a fairly big mention in this um, chapter. Would you like to have a look at it first and make some comments? So what has been their reaction? Very, very positive. Um, basically because a lot of this um, story hasn't really been told before. So it's an opportunity to get it into the public eye and at the moment, we have a big push in Australia <clears throat> for voice treaty truth um, coming out of the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, in Reconciliation Week 2017. So uh, with that, is part of that is truth-telling of our history because a lot of it is either unknown or denied. That's really interesting. Would you say that that would um, 
also relate to the um, all the First Nations globally? Uh, I would say so. I mean, what's been coming out in the news lately in, in Canada, extremely disturbing with the graves of the children uh, from residential schools that have been found, um, absolutely shocking. And uh, there must be a lot of very grieving um, families and communities there at the moment. Um, and so that information, while it would have been known in Canada, is much more to the forefront of people's um, notice at the moment. And, you know, we had the same situation in Australia with the stolen generation of children that our government apologised for in 2008. And I believe Canada did after that. But um, the pain and the hurt is still there and those stories still need to be told because some people really don't believe that it happened. Do you think that it, that makes it very difficult for the First Nations to um, heal permanently? Oh, oh it, it does. It Certainly it does because uh, uh, when their stories aren't believed, uh, that's hurtful. And so that's why I believe with my book, uh, one of the things that I have done is um, uh, give voice um, to a lot of Aboriginal people. There are huge numbers of quotes in there of what uh, people have said, uh, First Nations people at very um, historic uh, times in the history of our nation. So just to have what they said at the time recorded I believe is uh, so important. Now in terms of healing and um, reconciliation and finding how hard it is to um, hear that news from Canada like how would a leader in your since you experience also working with Aboriginal leaders how would they go about forgiveness and healing? Well the thing that um, what we have done um, in, in Australia is to spend a lot of time, um, my husband, who's an Aboriginal First Nations pastor, um, spent a lot of time saying sorry, um, and that needs to be genuine. So it's a matter of acknowledging the history, um, being uh, coming into genuine sorry and, and repentance uh, before God, because the sin mostly is really before God. Um, and, and he grieves for First Nations people, how they've been treated as well. So, so genuinely saying sorry does help um, with being able to come to a point of um, forgiveness. And uh, so um, for Norman, and whose who's, uh, First Nations name is Monganbana, meaning mountain water, um, uh, he and I have done a lot of work in healing the wounds of history, a work of reconciliation. And is part of the healing and reconciliation also praying that we are sorry and we repent of the sins of that generation who committed those crimes and atrocities? Oh, absolutely. Um, that is just very, very important because the, the thing is really in the end, only God is the one who can do the healing. And, and yet there are still First Nations people who do have a genuine faith in God, um, but are still going through some, some grieving and even resentment um, who need to be helped to heal as well. And, um, 
you know, prayer is one of the ways of, of doing that. And just sitting with people, acknowledging their pain and helping them to work through their pain. So true. You remind me about um, this certain example that um, I just came back from a mission trip. And in this one situation where the Holy Spirit told me to just hug this lady, First Nations lady, at a um, gathering of Native leaders and pastors. And so the Holy Spirit told me to hug this lady and I'm hugging this lady and she would she wouldn't let me go for like about three minutes. Mm. I tell you, I've never been hugged for that long of a time. And the Holy Spirit just kept telling me, just keep hugging her until she lets go. And then she mm. let go. But she of course she had tears. But I tell you, I that is so memorable of whatever healing that she was going through it it was so impactful that I will never forget that long hug yes very very precious and look as as children you know they may not have had the hugs that they needed particularly if they came through residential schools or you know had been taken from their parents and so hugging can be healing just that expressing that caring from another human being so true in your reviews section of your book it states secret and lies the shocking truth of recent aboriginal history we know that it's a memoir and it's both political it has a political chronicle and a personal memoir a journey and um, you take political activism and personal transformation, which became a lifelong journey. And then you show that the political and the personal can be two-sided in your life and a life of service too. Can you explain the political versus the personal sides of this life journey of service? Look, uh, as Marina, as a Christian, um, in my early days, early 20s, I really took the um, compassion and justice of the Christian message quite seriously. And that's when I became involved in supporting First Nations um, people um, in in their journeys uh, for justice. And so in many ways, the personal and the political were intertwined and yes it's just and it really still is for me today so uh it's been a life journey for me and and it's important to keep our integrity um in the process to be who we are um ourselves um personally but also to stand with other people as they um, go through their their life journeys as well. So very much, it's um, it hasn't been easy to put a dividing line between the two. And along with what you said about integrity, because on that same page you said that it states that political activism is not enough, and that it must be balanced by personal integrity and pursuit. Look, it's really it's really important because the thing is we. Um, we don't want to cause um, extra harm for people over what they have already experienced in their lives. And so, you know, we need to be, we need to have integrity. We need to have honesty. We need to have compassion. Um, We need to be genuine. So it's really important not to use people for, our own purposes. Um, it's important to really have the fruits of the Holy Spirit um, operating um, in our lives. And, you know, one of the things that the Lord showed me uh, quite early 
1996, uh, we we had what we called praise corroborates in Parliament House, Canberra, for a couple of years, um, organised by another ministry that we attended and did reconciliation workshops at. But uh, one of the things that the Lord showed me while I was there is that there is actually a counterfeit spirit of justice. And uh, that's when uh, people work for just causes in unjust ways. Um, and they have motivations or, or methods that involve anger and resentment and revenge, for example. Whereas if you're coming from a godly um, spirit of justice, then you come from a point of view of love and compassion and, and mercy. And so that's how you can discern the difference between the two and it's important to 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 discern the difference when we're working with people but also within ourselves because we need to discern within ourselves if we're coming from that godly spirit of justice or not because we don't want to do more harm than good. Right that's really interesting because we can get into we can get caught up in the anger and operate in an angry hateful spirit. Very easily. Yes, and uh, that's really counterproductive in the long run, and that's not what God wants. Exactly. And it's also probably um, very important to just when we're doing work, like activism work. And I mean, would you call it activism work? I hope I'm using oh, that ab- right term. Okay. Absolutely. So, I know, you know, now in this day and age, you know, you, you say a word and they're like, well, you know, I don't really call it activism. I call it God's ambassador. So I want to be able to um... oh look I know um I think there are people within the church um that have difficulties with the word um activism and mm-hmm. so um we try and um you know, maybe find words that mm-hmm. put it more nicely <laughs> but really when it comes down to it that's what it is uh and 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 I, I do believe that you know it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have the ministry of reconciliation and we have the message of reconciliation so what do we do with that message we don't hide it under a barrel we don't hide our light under a battle barrel we we need to be salt and light and i mean that's a more christian way of presenting it but look really it is political activism and uh we i don't resolve from that right and what I get from that, too, is that it's important for us when we do political activism that we just ask ourselves, you know, would Jesus say this? Would Jesus do this? Am I showing this? Am I doing this with love? Am I demonstrating the love of Jesus? Well, absolutely. And I think what is uh, really important for Christians and the church generally is not to get involved in um, party politics and uh, I see this um, this happened in the last elections in America and I believe it really divided the church mm-hmm. greatly and uh, I saw the flow-on effects into Australia's in Australia, Australian Christians have always been I guess are divided to a certain extent between left and right. But with the American elections and social media, it really flowed through into Australia and created more divisions in the church here, which was unfortunate because the Lord gave me a message many years ago because we've had a number of conferences we've hosted 
at Parliament House, Canberra over the years, four of them, in fact, uh, where the Lord told us to have it right in Parliament House. And one of the messages he gave me was um, about laying down party politics uh, on the altar. And he gave me the um, scripture from uh, Joshua. And uh, when when Joshua said um, to, to the Lord, whose side are you on? Mm. And uh, it was the commander of the army of the Lord. And he said, um, you know, uh, I'm not on your side or their side. And I think we need to remember that we need to be on God's side. Um, and we need to not confuse that with the political party. That is such an important point of view. Uh, it not only divided the body of Christ, Pastor Barbara, it even divided the world. Yes, it did. Yes. The non-Christian world, period, too. I mean, you would hear, you know, people doing the worst types of crimes against other, you know, um, non non-Christians and just towards each other. And I could see it happening in the school, could see it happening everywhere. And it was like, wow. I'd like for you to share chapter one, the Arukun and the Mornington Island takeover where the oppressive Queensland government planned to throw the church out of a Aboriginal mission and take over its administration. You stated in your book that the news circulated quickly around Arukun or Arukun, and by word of mouth, the community was in shock, and they were not consulted, nor had their, um, nor have their Aboriginal council was consulted. The government also has two communities in its sites, and you mentioned it was Mornington Island and Arukun. Why did the Queensland government want to throw the church out of the Aboriginal mission and take over its administration? Mm. There were a number of reasons, Marina. Um, one is that there were mining companies at Arakoon and the um, First Nations people there opposed that. And in fact, they even took the Queensland government um, to court um, with the help of the Uniting Church and they won the case. And so um, Bielke... He took it to Supreme Court, right? Yes, and they won. Now, the Bielke-Peterson government was furious about that and so took it to the Privy Council in England and then he won. And But he really resented the church supporting the people in that. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, this was in 1975 um, era, amazing that the community would do that but they did they were they were such um, a people who stood up for their rights and the the other thing uh, the uniting church um, and the previous administration the presbyterian church um, had a number of communities that they were administering one of those was um, weeper and they had allowed mining in there um, that had been destructive to the First Nations people. And also they had, um, the United Church had allowed the um, government to move the Mapoon people off their land, which was a very um, sad story, but I helped the people to move back 11 years later. But when it came to the situation at, at Arakoon, 
the Uniting Church said, we're not going to go down that track again. We're just going to be supporting the people against the government. We're not going to bow to the government anymore. Um, and the, Mornington Island was also under the Uniting Church. And so the other thing that the Uniting Church was doing was supporting the people to decentralise, to move out onto their tribal lands um, in outstations and was supporting them um, toward um, self-management so that the Uniting Church would be able to go and um, leave the people to manage themselves. And so all of those things were extremely annoying um, to Premier Bjelke Peterson and um, his government. Um, they feared, for one thing, a black state, because what had happened in the Northern Territory, the federal government under Prime Minister Fraser had uh, instituted uh, land rights legislation for the first time in Australia for First Nations people. And so uh, that meant certain areas of land coming under First Nations control. And so basically the Queensland government saw that as a black state and was very threatened by it. So for that reason, they thought they needed to get the Uniting Church out and take over themselves and uh, rule with an iron rod. Wow. And what had been the consequences of this? Well, the consequences of it was that there was um, basically a fight that lasted a couple of years. And um, I helped in that situation to, in terms of um, uh, Mick Miller, an Aboriginal school teacher who I later um, married. He and myself and a couple of other key Aboriginal people uh, started an organisation called the North Queensland Land Council. Um, we actually had already started that um, after the people moved back to Marpoon. So it had been going for a few years when this situation happened with Arakoon and Mornington Island. And so um, basically we helped in a campaign, a, a national campaign, uh, to be able to support the Arakoon people. The federal government uh, said that they would support the Arakoon and Mornington Island people, but in the end, they were outsmarted by the Queensland government. And so after a two-year battle, the Queensland government won. Hmm. And so what has been the, um, what is it like today because of that? What's the present day face, the political mm. face of uh, Australia now? Uh, unfortunately, with regard to Arakoon and even mm. Mornington Island, uh, the social conditions on the community, those communities have deteriorated um, greatly um, because one of the first things that the Queensland government did was to move uh, alcohol um, into the community. They set up um, they called it a canteen. It was like a pub um, in the community. And they said it was the human rights of um, First Nations people to be able to drink alcohol. Um, and that brought a downward spiral um, in the community. Now, was that related to suicide that increased in, I, I was just, I'm going back to some uh, of your newspaper um, clippings where you said that the Aboriginal community 
is, I hope I'm right, is three times more. The death rate is three times more than this state average. Does alcoholism play a part in that? Well, or- yes, uh, it does play a part. Um, there, there is a, a, a large um, difference in the health conditions of First Nations people mm-hmm. um, compared to the rest of the community. Um, and it is a higher suicide rate. It's a higher rate of um, homicide um, as well. So uh, it definitely alcohol related. Mm. And I did read that um, in the health, um, one of your health paragraphs about the diabetes being very prevalent in the Aboriginal community. Um, yes, and, and the Torres Strait Islands as well. And part of that, I think, is uh, intergenerational poverty. Uh, one of the things, look, you know, people... People say slavery didn't happen in Australia. Well, it certainly was not the same as what happened um, in the USA. Uh, That's for sure. But you can't say it really didn't happen in Australia because we had situations where the children that were stolen um, from their families to assimilate them into Australian society, they were really used as um, uh, cheap labour and... Uh, like getting sixpence a week or something like that. And also there was underpayment of award wages uh, we on Aboriginal reserves. So instead of calling them reservations, they were called reserves here and they weren't paid proper wages. So that intergenerational um, and, and even wages that were paid were held by the police at the police station and um, many of them were actually stolen wages and not paid um, to the people at all. And so with that intergenerational um, poverty and the change of diet um, to a a European diet and and just having damper and syrup and tea and uh, whatever they could afford, that did affect um, the health of fascinating people. Mm. Right. And I did remember also reading another part in your book that – uh, along with the health and their eating um, change, their, the foods that they ate, they first ate natural foods that they, the crops that they actually planted from their yards or their lands, I should say. And it went from the syrup and the, the modern foods that they ate. So That's right. Pastor Barbara, I read your book from that your mother did not want you to become part of an Aboriginal family, but yet they were the ones who helped bury her. Mm. Uh, so I was wondering, why do you think she did not want you to become part of an Aboriginal family? I know your husband comes from an Aboriginal family your husband, Norman, and I know he's also a pastor. Yes, I, I think, you know, she was um, part of her generation um, and many of them had um, a very low view um, of, of uh, First Nations people. So, uh, yes, I mean, it was racism and I never confronted her and said, Mummy, racist, I thought it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, she she did change um, because Norman was so forgiving and, and so loving um, that she did change over a period of, of time. But uh, 
yeah, she wouldn't uh, come to our wedding and uh, she really found it quite difficult, um, my life choice to be part of an Aboriginal family. But in the end, it was her Aboriginal family that um, loved her and buried her. But throughout your marriage, um, did she change? Did she view him any different? Uh, yes. Look, what, what happened is that about a year after Norman and I married, we went to visit her um, about a thousand k's away where she lived. And when we, Nor- Norman had prayed and dealt with his, his hurt mm-hmm. um, over her attitude. And um, so he'd been healed of that and so when we got to the door um he just said um hello mum I love you Mm. and she kind of melted and uh Mm. so let us in and uh it went on from there so um some months later she came up to visit and actually stayed with us which was a big thing for her considering what she had come from and Norman uh, waited on her hand and foot, put fresh flowers in her room every day. And so when it came time for her to go, she said, can I take him with me? Mm-hmm. So she had really uh, turned her attitude around. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful ending. Mm. And what a beautiful, um, what a love response that your husband did with her where he just said, I love you, and just fully just forgave her. Yeah, uh, it was a big thing for him to do, um, and it melted her heart. At the end of your book, I see that there was a picture of you and your husband, Norman, in front of Dreams and Visions painting that was done this year. And it says, I want to conclude with the story of a large canvas three-piece painting of Norman's called Dreams and Visions. He paints under his um, durable name of Munganbana, which means mountain water. And you say in your book, I am the black face peering out. My wife is the white face looking back at me. We are a reflection of each other. Someone once said we are like twins, one black and one white, but one in spirit, seeing the same vision dreaming the same dream. Boomerangs symbolize a cycle of discovery. We continually venture out and try new things. Then we return and regroup before we go exploring again. Pastor Barbara, why did you choose to end your book this way? Well, my husband and I, we just love each other so much and we think so much the same and we feel the same way about things and uh, you know it's it's just uh, such a treasure and it's I guess from what we've seen from other families um, unusual Um, and particularly with him being black and me being being white it's probably more amazing that um, we think and feel so much um, alike and so much so that someone said we are twins and so um yeah so it seemed like a a nice way to to end the book to express our oneness with each other it's a beautiful ending 
I'm curious to find out if it has anything related to Aboriginal history in any way. Oh, probably not. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's probably just the personal side. Okay. That's just the memoir side. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you, um, or I should say, what words of encouragement would you like to give to the listeners about any part of your book? Look, I think the main thing is, is um, be who you are, be who you are called to be, um, and, and be kind um, to others. Because the, the thing is, you know, we're, we're, we're put um, on this world for a reason. The, God is, has a plan and a purpose for our life. We want to be able to fulfill that and we want to be able to leave the world, the world a better place um, for having been here. Um, and so really with this book, it's, it's part of um, my legacy that, that I leave um, so that people can see, okay, this is what happened in this part of history. This is what can be done, um, a, an example of what can be done to make things, the world a better place. Where can the listeners purchase your book? Uh, from my website, and that'll take you a link to Amazon, so it can be bought anywhere in the world. So my website is www.barbara hyphen miller with two l's hyphen books.com or they can go just straight to amazon.com right yes yes you can just google google amazon and uh so i've got the ebook and the print book there and it's bestseller in a number of um, categories at the moment uh public law civil law discrimination law uh international treaties um, study and teaching of history, sociology of race relations. It's number one bestseller in all of those categories on Amazon US. So absolutely amazing. Wow. <laughs> God has given you the victory, Pastor Barbara. That's Praise amazing. The Praise the Lord. What words of encouragement would you like to give to the Aboriginal community about your book? Look, I, I, I just think it opens the, the window um, on the world of the First Nations people of Australia. Mm-hmm. I know it might seem funny because I'm a white person writing it, but I have um, I've, I've really tried to um, let the First Nations or Aboriginal voices be the ones to speak um, in, in a lot of the books. So it is a memoir of me, so, of course, my story is in there as well mm-hmm. um, and how it's interwoven with the stories of many First Nations people. So it opens a window on a world that maybe you wouldn't know about if you hadn't read the book. Right. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Barbara, for coming to uh, Faith City Outreach to share your book. And I do encourage all the listeners to go ahead and um, just purchase the book, Secret and Lies. It's about the shocking truth about recent Australian Aboriginal history, and it's a memoir. So I was just curious to find out if you could just end in a short prayer for whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you to pray for, Pastor Barbara. Thank you, Marina. So Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to um, speak to Marina. And um, Lord, I just pray for all those people who are listening, 
And Lord, I just pray at the moment that uh, your Holy Spirit would move upon them. Lord, that you would open their spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to see and hear what you would want to show them. And Lord, that you would um, give them an excitement in the spirit about what you can do um, with their lives, Lord. Lord, I just thank you that the life of each one listening is just so precious to you, Lord, so precious to you. And uh, so, Lord, I just pray that they would just reach out to you for a fresh touch from you now. And, uh, Lord, that you would just um, uh, just bring them closer and closer to you. And, Lord, that you would just pour out your blessings upon them this morning and bring them to a place um, in their lives that you want them to be, be. Bring them closer to your heart. Lord, that every day, every um, step that they take would be in the direction that you had planned and purposed for them. Because, Lord, you said, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans not to harm you, but plans to prosper you and uh, to bring you into a good life. So, Lord, we just thank you for that. Bless each one this morning. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Faith City Outreach with Marina Maria, founder of Global Gospel Worship Radio. Join us next time as Marina interviews local pastors and global leaders to share their testimonies and their ministries. All music is courtesy of zapsplat.com, and our thanks goes out to Four Winds Ministries in Arizona for partnering with Faith City Outreach. If you'd like to support this ministry, just go to fcoprogram.com and click the donate button. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed day.